now it's time for On the Couch with our resident psychologist Jane Enter, exploring life and caring for our mental and spiritual well-being on Bay FM 99.9. Welcome to our regular On the Couch segment with resident psychologist Jane Enter, based at First Light Healthcare, Byron Bay. Today we explore death and dying. Is it the fear that drives us and the worm at the core of mental health? Jane Enter has a lot of experience with this topic. Great to speak with you again, Jane. Hi, Fern. Thanks again for having me back. Look, it was once said that the only certainty in life is death. It's something all of us sooner or later will have to confront. Is the fear of dying at the core of what drives us humans? Look, it depends who you read. But generally, if you think about the fact that when we get anxious and when we are depressed, there's a fear that we're losing something or we're scared of something happening. And often it's to do with something where we won't exist anymore or something could threaten our existence. So if you were to really drill it down, that it is a possibility to think like that. Uh, there's a beautiful book by Irvin Yalom called Staring at the Sun, where he talks about anxiety across a number of people that he's had therapy with. And all of them, at the root of it, the, the anxiety underneath, it's a fear of death and dying, of us not existing anymore, of our existence being threatened. And often when you talk to people who are leaving marriages, they say things like, I couldn't survive if I'd stayed there. It's like that was the impetus eventually that made them leave was they felt they were dying within the relationship. So yes, I think it informs a lot of our mental health and reactivity. We'll explore all of that. Talk a bit about the difference between how traditionally our cultures dealt with death compared to uh, today because it's vastly different, isn't it? It is, and Australia is appalling at dealing with death. I think you get 24 to 48 compassionate hours leave. And before, in long ago times, and currently still obviously in places like Varanasi in India and Italy and other cultures, Ireland, when someone you loved died, there was Jewish culture, mourning, loss, in Italy, for example, if you live in a small village, you're allowed to wear black for a year or two. People bring you food. They don't expect you to be normal, whatever that is. And they're understanding that you are altered by what's happened. Whereas in Australia, it's like a major loss happens and it's the next day or two back to work. There is a real lack of understanding of the depth and ladness of losing somebody who matters enormously to you and the time it takes to recover and the support you need while you go through and traverse loss. There's a real avoidance of it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. When you think about it, you know, we, we box people up, get over it, and that's it. And what happens is people say things, you know, I had a, a person who I saw a long time ago who lost the love of his life, loved this person 
Absolutely. And everyone wanted to put him on antidepressants and because it was six months and he wasn't over her. This person had been a part of his life for 30 years. She was the essence of his being in many ways. And we just worked over two years why he, he grieved and then he was okay. But if he had taken a lot of medication, that grief process would be delayed. I think we have to learn to sit with grief and people who are grieving in a way that doesn't scare us and where we don't feel we need to fix it. It is normal. It is a part of our existence that people we love, and including ourselves, will one day not be here. And we'll devote a whole program to grief and loss in the future. Fear of death is not new, of course. In fact, the word for fear of death, phanatophobia, comes from the ancient Greek word phanatos, the name of the god of death, and phobos, meaning fear. How is the fear of death different today? And is it more prevalent because we don't have as much contact as we used to? Yes, I think there's a, a t- we, we avoid death. We avoid talking about it. We avoid contemplating our own death. We just hope that, you know, it's just not going to happen. But the fact is, of course, we're all going to one day not be here. And when we have a fear of death, we do what we always do. We practice avoidance. We don't want to talk about the very thing we fear because we think that if we talk about it, somehow it'll bring it to life. And we don't deal with it well. We hide it. I think I once spoke in another show with you about the beautiful painting by Bruegel of Icarus falling into the ocean. He's dying, he's drowning, and the rest of the world is just carrying on going to market. And that's how we deal with death. Until it's in our midst, actually confronting us, we hope to avoid it and do everything, in fact, to avoid it. Why are we so uncomfortable with it? I think it's because of what we're going to lose, you know. There's, it's that liminal state we spoke of, the uncertainty of when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, the transitioning between being here and not being here. And then we think about, well, oh, would we rather have a quick death like a massive heart attack or a stroke and that's it, on the golf course or at the beach, die in our sleep so we don't have to suffer? Or do we want a more lingering death so we get time to say goodbye to the people we love and to tell them how much we love them? Of course we should be telling them as often as we can. But I, I, I think that we find it such an uncomfortable subject because it means we will have to say goodbye, that the people we love will no longer be with us, that we will be gone, or that the people we love will be gone, and that feels unbearable for people at times. So it's so hard for us to start talking about it in preparation? Yes, and there's a lovely quote by Christopher Walken, and he says, Someday you will be faced with the reality of loss, and as life goes on, days rolling into nights, it will become clear that you've never really stopped missing someone special who's gone, and you just learn to live around the gaping hole of their absence. And he has a beautiful way of speaking about these things because we do have to learn to live with the fact that we will be gone and the people we love will sometimes be gone. Mm. We fear death, yet paradoxically 
Many of us feed on a diet of films that are very violent and then contain a lot of death. Why is that? Look, I think we're wired biologically for survival, so of course we fear death. We're meant to be here and look after ourselves. On the other hand, a bit of violence for some people is like a good exposure therapy. It's like, oh yeah, this could happen, but just not to me. And I think it, it allows us to look at death without actually having to confront it. And of course, there's the adrenaline rush with some of these films. Some films people get very moved by. Um, I don't know if you remember Beaches with Bette Midler. There are movies about death and loss which, which really move us and which sober us up to the reality of, of the, the loss of our life and the people we love. Do you think we start contemplating it as we get older, of course? I think we do. And as the body starts to tell us it's ageing, and we start to not be possibly as in prime condition, we start to think, okay, I am beginning to deteriorate a little bit and this is possibly going to be the next trajectory for me, deterioration and dying. There are lots of theories, of course, about the fear of death. It was uh, Sigmund Freud who said that this fear stems from unaddressed childhood trauma. Then later anthropologist Ernst Becker theorised that death anxiety comes naturally to all people who find the thought of death and dying unacceptable. Talk a bit about these different theories, different ways of seeing the fear of death. Um, I think Freud wrote a beautiful essay on, on mourning. And You know, everyone's got their theories about death and dying. And of course, it's such a unique thing. We all have some fear of dying because it is the end of us. And to contemplate that is quite confronting. Whether it's to do with what Freud says or to do with what the anthropologist says, in us you think, How much of our culture is based on you can live longer if, you can prolong your life if. Intensive care units were originally set up for people with polio who couldn't breathe. And now they they had a purpose and now they are to prolong life as long as possible because we find it so hard to let go and say goodbye. So I'm not sure that any one theory actually fits the whole notion of our lives ending I think you have to read and think what works for you and and what it is about your own death that is so scary and so confronting in terms of that fear can we ever get to a point of being relaxed about it look I think Buddhism again they have a lovely theory that it is worse than dying is not to live a meaningful life And they believe if you contemplate your death every day, that will inform how you live your life. It will inform how you treat others, how you deal with things, so that when you come to that time when you're dying, you have less regret and feel more at peace that you have lived a good and meaningful life. 
So I think it depends on and what your philosophical stance is, how you contemplate these things, whether you carry it as I need to be here in the present to enjoy it because how long do I know I have of these present moments? And none of us know that. Mm. Well, tell us uh, some of the common ways that this death anxiety manifests itself in people, Jane. Avoidance hypochondria or somatization of, of, of medical stuff, you think, oh, that twinge, it's a heart attack, that could be a cancer. And of course, people who've actually had life-threatening illnesses, it has a whole different meaning for them. And it's more, much more scary and realistic. But we practice it by avoidance. We deal with it by um, not talking about it. We deal with it by hiding it. We don't want to speak about it because we don't want to bring up a topic that might make us sad. Instead of it being a conversation that, yep, we're not going to be here one day. And how how do we want to die? And what songs do we want played at our leaving party? And what do we want said about us when we die? How do we live our value-added life so that when we die... We feel that the things that might be said about us when we are leaving actually match how we wanted to live. Mm. And if we talk about these things, it becomes much more of an acceptable topic and it's so helpful for families because then they know. Uncle Tom wants, Tom Mm. Jones played at his funeral and he wants this and he wants this reading and he wants this kind of after party. There are people who've had known that they've had terminal illnesses and they've had a huge party while they're living to say goodbye to people. That's a much more realistic and useful way to deal with your demise. Mm. When does a fear of dying become a problem, though? When you are so terrified of it that you cannot live. For example... You won't get on a plane because you think you'll be blown up, but you'd really love to see Greece. You won't go out of your house because you think you're going to get a germ that's going to kill you. You won't do things that interferes with your quality of life and the way you want to live because you might die. What you don't realize, of course, is is that your fear of dying is actually trapping you and keeping you stuck and you're not really living. So when it severely affects your life, who is more prone to fanatophobia? People who feel they have a lot to lose, people who are uh, anxious people, people who um, feel they haven't done enough with their life so they want to live so that they can actually do the things they haven't done. And it can strike people at different times. You know, the most well-adjusted people, again, can suddenly get this fear because something's happened to them, Mm. there's been a major loss, and suddenly the reality of, oh, this could happen to me, and they get scared because it's the unknown. Mm. It's the uncertainty and the unknown. And as I've said, we're not good with that. Mm. You touched on this earlier, but is it true to say that fear of death is at the core of most anxieties? Irvin Yalom certainly believes so, and I think if one was to really drill it down, yes. Post-traumatic stress disorder, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, the very thing that happens to you, you're scared you're going to die or that someone you love is going to die 
or if you have a germ phobia you're scared you're going to die if you get a germ or if you have uh, agoraphobia you're scared something terrible will happen to you when you leave the house if you think about it 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 is if you drill it down probably at the core of most anxieties so underlying it is ultimately the fear of death what about mental health illnesses in general is fear of death a, a contributor there it can be for example um, when people have had major loss or major grief it can trigger um, mental health issues and um, when you know you have a terminal illness often it can trigger all sorts of things in terms of sadness and depression and the people around you can become more anxious at the thought that you might not be here so it can have a big impact on people's mental health mm, a question i always like to ask you jane is how do you work with people through this through fear of dying in this instance I think it's really useful to normalize these fears, to talk about them, to put them in perspective, to understand the genesis of where this has come from for them. It can be that when they were little they saw something that was terrifying to them. It can be that they lost a parent early or a sibling early. It can be that they're frightened of their own health issues. It's to understand each individual's reason that they feel these things and to normalize some of it in the great perspective of being human mm. and work with them about how to live the best life you can while holding the fact that you might not be here mm. and marrying those so you feel satisfied with your life that you are living knowing that it will one day end doing both well walk us through an example Okay, so there are various models of death and dying. There's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's and there are various other ones. And I think the important thing is when someone comes to you, normally they come in a terrible state. They do not know how they can go on. Often they want to join the person who has left, not in a way that is about suicide, but as in a way of identifying with that person. They want to wear the clothes and smell the smell of that person. They do not want to let that person go. They're not ready. And you walk them through a process of identifying with the person, the meaningfulness of that relationship, the loss and what it means to them, how they manage that loss and continue to live, how you validate and understand what it is meant to them and what it is currently meaning to them and then there's this beautiful quote which I just want to get to because you know Nick Cave lost his son and there's a beautiful thing where it says grief is a force of energy that cannot be controlled or predicted grief does not obey your plans or your wishes grief will do whatever it wants to you whenever it wants to in that regard grief has a lot in common with love and slowly people understand even though the person has gone the relationship with that person continues in a different form they live in your heart they live in your memory they live in the conversations that you have that are ongoing with them you honor them in your existence they inform your day to day 
they've left physically but they've never left you emotionally and memory and you know the relationship continues after they have left you and you learn to live alongside the loss. You yourself Jane have had a personal experience losing your daughter of course would you like to share that with our listeners? Look I think losing a child has to be the worst of griefs because it is against the natural order of things. And I was literally, in the true Latin sense of the word, devastated, laid to waste. To lose a child as a parent when your whole job is to try and keep your children safe and alive and you expect they will be there at your funeral, not that you will ever attend theirs. And I remember being so so absolutely gutted and brought to my knees. And I used to think, you know, people said beautiful things like, you know, grief is just love making its way out of you. And it took me a long time, and I still mourn and miss Georgia because, you know, she was a a force of life for me. But I have learned that out of her death has come some meaning and that meaning is I love more fully I love more deeply I say the things that I need to say um, to people um, to tell them how much I love them and how much they mean to me I have a son and I look at him and I am so grateful that I have him And you learn, well, I learned, that your life continues even though it seems it cannot. Mm. You can can somehow make a life even though you've had this incredibly dreadful loss. Mm. And another meaningful thing that came out for me was I see parents now who are referred to me who've lost children. And because of my own experience, I feel that I can give them a level of understanding and guidance and support that maybe if you haven't lost a child, you don't understand the gravity and the layered entry of that loss in every cell of your body and fibre of your being. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that process and how long it took for you? Look... The first year, I think your brain is bathed in hormones which make you continue. That's the part of you that can organise funerals, attend to people, respond. It was like waking up and looking through a glass mirror where the world was out there but I didn't feel it. I felt like I'd put on 50 kilos overnight and I now know it's called the lead suit an obesity of grief and it made me feel like I weighed a lot more it was very heavy and hard to move and I knew that things had shifted for me when one day I could get out of bed and I didn't feel I weighed 200 kilos and then I had amazing friends who who wrapped their arms around me and I had a son I had to go on I wanted to make it okay for him And the second year was terrible because I realised it was true, that my daughter wasn't walking through the door. And I'd hear songs like, I will never speak your name again. Um, And, of course, I was going to speak her name, often and every day, but it was that thought I wouldn't hear her voice. 
And then in the third year, it's sort of settled into a permanent perpetual sorrow that this person that I would have given my life for bargained with God, but he was an absolute bastard, I want to tell you, and wouldn't listen to me. I had to continue. I had to continue to make her life meaningful. And I knew that if I arrived early, wherever she was, she was going to tell me off big time about how I wasted my life, and she would tell me where I went wrong. So I thought, I've got to live to do the best I can so that she can be proud of me. And then in the fourth and the fifth year, I learned to move easier with it. And now eight years later, I think I have managed it about as well as one can. And not to say that I don't wake up sometimes and think, God, Georgia, I wish you were here. I miss you. How could you do this? And yet, you know, we do. We, we manage to go on when we think we cannot. But do we ever get over something no. like that? No, I don't think we do. And you know what? What does that really mean? get over it like it's a hurdle and we just step over I think what we learn is that we can live with the unlivable we can bear the unbearable that we are stronger and more enduring than we know and that you learn to live alongside it and you learn to honor it and feel it when it visits you and you learn to enjoy the moments when you feel good and happy you have a new appreciation of every moment of life jane death is seen very much in our western cultures as a sad thing but it doesn't have to be that way does it in many cultures it's actually celebrated Yes, it's celebrated that you lived, that you were here, that people got to know you. The Buddhists believe it's the end of your suffering, that, you know, as soon as you take human form, you begin to suffer. So there's a whole beautiful ritual in Buddhism about preparing you for death every day of your life. And it's seen as the end of your pain and suffering. And there are cultures, of course, that see it as the great entry into the sky and the heavens. Mm. And so it depends, I think, on how you view your life, whether you're happy and satisfied with how you live it, and how you philosophize and make meaning out of your existence as to what your relationship will be like with when you are no longer going to be here. But even in our Western cultures, traditionally, we had a lot more contact where our grandparents and parents didn't go into nursing homes. They got frail and slowly died in front of our eyes at home. Uh, Our loved ones didn't die in hospitals. And the actual grooming of the dead bodies and the burial was done largely by the family and involved the village and the community largely. That is no longer the case that gave us more opportunities to be closer to dying and uh, perhaps get some closure as well how important is that for the whole ritual of dying look I want to make it clear we can choose to have people die at home and I'm sure you all know Zenith is uh, Virago has a wonderful way of helping people through the process And I'd like to talk a little bit about my daughter because she had a really rare form of cancer and died 
at home in my bed, in my arms, with her brother and her father around you and her friends. And we all dressed her body and we all looked after her. And we all got to be there for the last couple of months in her life people lived at my house and we celebrated every moment that she was still living and so did she she had a really good death and I think that that helped us all you do not have to put your loved one in a home you do not have to outsource death and dying to a hospital you can actually have your loved one if they want because I remember that people sometimes feel safer dying in a hospital because they worry about pain levels or they fear being a burden. So it's the, it's the wish of the dying person that has to be taken into consideration. Mm. But I think if you can have your loved one dying at home with you and you can bear it, it is a much more... You, you accommodate and accept... And you're part of it. And it's, it's thing, this thing that you experience together mm. rather than this place you go and visit to see the person suddenly not here. It's a different relationship. Mm. So there is the possibility still of dying at home. Well, there is a movement back, as you mentioned there, to reconnect with this natural uh, process called death here in our region and uh, Zenith Virago has been very prominent in that she founded the Natural Death Care Centre, she takes people through this whole, and families through this whole grieving process uh, the dying process and it becomes a celebration of life, that is still quite rare, do you think there is a real movement back? I think people are beginning to realise they have options you know, often we think, oh, yes, we have to do it the way it's always been done, which is not the way it's been done for centuries. But with the medicalization of death and the clinical hygienic approach to it, where it happens in a hospital and it is removed from you, I think people have begun to say, actually, no, we want to be with our loved ones. We want them home with us. And I think we're beginning to realize that there's more than one way to do this. And we are revisiting this. And people like Zenith are incredibly important in making, un making us aware of choices and getting us to think about it and creating a living will. And actually all of us having the conversation with loved ones. You know, one day I won't be here. This is what I'd like. I don't want to go to hospital. If you can bear it, I'd like to be at home. Or I do not want to be resuscitated. Or I would like the extra dose of morphine as soon as possible. There are ways we can have these discussions with our GPs, with our loved ones, that make it much easier to navigate when the time comes. Mm. And reacquainting ourselves with death and dying as a natural thing that will also reduce this great fear and anxiety that we've got about death, won't it? Yes. As soon as we practice avoidance, we have fear. As soon as you actually look at the very thing you fear, it reduces the fear. That is an indisputable fact. Mm. You will actually be okay if you can deal with the thing you are frightened of. Jane Ento, it's been a great pleasure once again. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for having me, Fern. On our next On the Couch, 
Intimate relationships, the challenges and rewards. How important are they for our mental health and personal growth? Hope you can join us then.